Old Pilot's Plane Tales, 100 Years. On the 1st of April 2018, the Royal Air Force celebrates 100 years as the world's oldest independent air force. Yep, it was also April Fool's Day, which, I feel, was very apt for the formation of the junior service. Whilst rank structure was modified from the navies, it was an army officer, the first commander of the Royal Flying Corps, who asked his men to come up with a motto for the new Air Force. Two of his junior officers were walking from the number one officer's mess at Farnborough to Cody's shed on Laffin Plain. As they walked, they discussed the problem of the motto, and Lieutenant J.S. Yule mentioned the phrase Sic Aitur ad Astra from Virgil. He then expanded on this with the phrase Per Ardua ad Astra, which he translated as Through Struggles to the Stars. Colonel Sykes approved and forwarded it to the War Office, which then submitted it to the King, who approved its adoption. In fact, it seems that Yule may have read it in a book called The People of the Mist by Sir Henry Ryder Haggard. In the first chapter was the passage, To his right were two stately gates of iron fantastically wrought, supported by stone pillars, on whose summit stood griffins of black marble, embracing coats of arms and banners inscribed with the device Per Ardua, Ad Astra. The official translation has always been through adversity to the stars. The heraldic emblem of the Royal Air Force is an eagle superimposed on a circlet surmounted by a crown and was based on a design created by a tailor at Geeves and Hawks, the famous military tailors of Number no. 1 Savile Row. Of interest, Hawks was previously employed by old Mel Meredith, who tailored the uniform that Admiral Lord Nelson was wearing when he was killed in action aboard HMS Victory during the Battle of Trafalgar. The location of the shop was chosen to be close to the Royal Geographical Society because they dressed so many Victorian explorers. The tailors gained many royal warrants, the first in 1809. Their customer list included such names as the Duke of Wellington, Michael Jackson, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. All I could afford from them was my RAF service dress hat. The emblem created for the Royal Air Force was also adopted as the basis for the badges of the Australian, New Zealand, Canadian, Indian, Pakistan and South African Air Forces. The first uniform of the RAF was described by Marshal of the Royal Air Force John Slessor as a nasty pale blue with a lot of gold over it, which brings irresistibly to mind a vision of the gentleman who stands outside the cinema. A year later, the Air Ministry replaced it with the blue-grey colour, which has remained in use to this day. A rumour of the time was that the cloth for the new uniform had been destined for Russian soldiers during the First World War, but sold cheap to the RAF when that market unexpectedly closed following the Russian Revolution. 
It was as the First World War concluded that Field Marshal Jan Smuts was tasked with studying the impact that air power had made on the conflict and present his findings to the Imperial War Cabinet. On his recommendation, 100 years ago, the two British flying services, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service, were combined. The newly formed military service became the most powerful air force in the world, with over 20,000 aircraft and 300,000 personnel, and came under the command of the man who is known as the father of the Royal Air Force, Sir Hugh Trenchard, the first Chief of the Air Staff. As the newspapers of the time commented, In the employment of the planes, a limitless vista opens before the Air Minister. When General Maud has taken Baghdad, it was by aeroplanes raining fire on the Turkish army as it poured northwards up the Tigris bank that he completed the route that has put us in secure possession of the whole Baghdad Villette. And in the present tremendous struggle, nothing is more significant than the accounts of the havoc played by our airmen amongst the dense German reinforcements converging on the front. It is clear that, given enough aeroplanes to pour a massive and continuous fire on the German routes to the battle line, we could have made the present offensive largely futile. The main task of this new force was to police the British Empire from the skies. Air power was much more cost-effective when compared with the cost of deploying ground units, particularly in the remote areas of Iraq, Afghanistan and Somaliland, where they put down a rebellion by the dervishes. Despite a growing role for the junior of the three services, following the armistice, defence cuts started to impact, and for nine months the RAF had to wait and see if it would be retained at all. By the end of 1919, the service had been reduced to a strength of only 35,500 men. During the interwar period, the fledgling Air Force had to fight for survival. In order to win over the general public, it spent considerable efforts to keep itself in the eye of the British people. Events such as the Hendon Air Show became famous, and it was here, on the edge of London, that the air pageant revealed the latest fighters and displayed the talents of the RAF's best squadrons. The antics flown were designed to amaze and thrill, and mishaps weren't unusual, particularly when formation aerobatics were being performed with the aircraft tied together with bunting. Hundreds and thousands would come to gaze at the aerial spectacle, which usually concluded with an attack on a huge mock-up of a barracks or a ship or military vehicles which were attacked and blown up, scattering debris everywhere. Britain's giant airship, the R-101, is flying over the aerodrome now. Gives rather a fine idea of the evolutions that they're performing. The catapult is operated by two compressed air engines, each less in size than an ordinary house dustbin. Flight officer V. Hugh Williams crashed in a tutor plane while giving a demonstration of what not to do. The plane was wrecked, but the pilot escaped injury. And something like half a million people are estimated to have seen it this year. 
However, after the war to end all wars, the government was in no mood to spend more on armament. There was no serious threat on the horizon and cuts were made. Even Winston Churchill, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, agreed that Britain would have ten years to rearm should a threat appear. It wasn't until the early 1930s that a reassessment was made, and after the Italian action against Abyssinia and the German reoccupation of the Rhineland, the Cabinet decided that it had to match the Luftwaffe with new equipment. However, when the invasion of Poland forced Britain into World War II, the situation was bleak. It wasn't just equipment that was in short supply, it was also men. It was the men of the Commonwealth who came to the defence of Britain, as well as many other countries, such as Poland. They did much to bolster the RAF, and barely in time. The Battle of Britain became a defining period of the RAF's existence. In perhaps the most prolonged and complicated air campaign in history, they held off the Luftwaffe. As the war progressed, it was the RAF who took the fight to Germany with its massive bombing campaign, including such noteworthy raids as Operation Millennium against Cologne, Chastise against the dams of the Ruhr Valley, Gomorrah against Hamburg and Berlin, and Carthage against the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen, just to name a few. After the end of World War II, the RAF was drawn into the Arab-Israeli War. Due to the confused circumstances of the 1948 Middle East conflict, the RAF found itself fighting first the Egyptian Air Force, then the Jewish militias, and later the nascent Israeli Air Force. On the 22nd of May, the Egyptians attacked RAF Ramat David. Two Royal Egyptian Air Force Spitfires strafed aircraft of No. 32 Squadron and No. 208 Squadron on the ground. Flying Officer Jeff Cooper and Roy Bowie took off in their Spitfire Mark 18s to mount a standing patrol. Three Egyptian Spitfires launched a second attack, two of which were shot down by Cooper and Bowie. Flying Officers Mikel Hoare and Hully took over the standing patrol before the third wave of Egyptian Spitfires arrived. Flying Officer Mikhail War shot both of these down. The air became somewhat chillier for the RAF as the Cold War started, and the first action was to help feed the people of Berlin during the airlift. This combined operation helped save both the people and the independence of Berlin against the Soviet blockade. By the end, the RAF had transported over half a million tons of supplies to the beleaguered German people. Although the United Kingdom did not base any RAF squadrons in Korea during the Korean War, 41 RAF officers were seconded to serve with the United States Air Force and several RAF pilots saw action, mainly flying F-86 Sabres. They were credited with seven kills. At least one pilot was killed when his F-84E Thunderjet was shot down by anti-aircraft fire on the 2nd of January 1952 as he attempted to strafe a column of trucks near Sunsan, a village north of Pyongyang. Other RAF pilots flew meteors in the Royal Australian Air Force squadrons on ground support attacks. 
the 50s, 60s and 70s saw the RAF committed to the defence of the United Kingdom and the support of NATO during the Cold War. A large percentage of Britain's nuclear deterrent was invested in the three V-bombers, the Valiant, the Victor and the Vulcan. The UK developed its own nuclear weapons manufacturer, and even after the introduction of the Polaris submarines, nuclear-capable squadrons were maintained in West Germany. In other areas of conflict, the RAF saw action in the Malayan emergency, the Mau Mau conflict in Kenya, the Suez crisis, and the Confrontasi against Indonesia. Harriers were also deployed to Belize to protect it from the territorial claims of Guatemala. However, with the decline of the British Empire, military commitments in the Far East were reduced and eventually the RAF's Far East Air Force was disbanded in 1971. The 1980s saw the start of the Falklands War with the need to deploy aircraft to recapture the islands from Argentinian forces who had invaded this distant British overseas territory. A mammoth effort, it involved the RAF flying alongside the Fleet Air Arm Sea Harriers in support of the task force that was sailing over 8,000 miles to recapture the islands. RAF pilots shot down five Argentinian aircraft. In addition, during the Black Butt raids, the aging Vulcan force, supported by Victor Edaway refueling tankers with Nimrods in support, flew the 4,000 miles between Ascension Island and the Falkland Islands, there and back again, to attack the main airfield at Stanley. To this day, the RAF maintains a fighter presence on the Falklands, now with typhoons, but before that, the F-3 Tornado, and before that, F-4 Phantoms. In the 1990s, during the build-up to the Gulf War, RAF fighters were based all over the Middle East. Over 100 aircraft took part in almost every conceivable role. Fighters enforced no-fly zones. Reconnaissance aircraft, using state-of-the-art equipment, flew at night hunting scuds, and support aircraft flew record levels of hours. The RAF also operated over the Balkans during Operation Deny Flight. F-3 Tornadoes and AWACS aircraft police the airspace, and the Kosovo War saw the RAF fight over Europe for the first time since the Second World War. Harrier GR-7s and Tornado Grand Attack aircraft operated over the former Yugoslavia flying bombing missions. More recently, the RAF supported the invasion of Afghanistan with refueling tankers, support helicopters, Harriers and GR-4 Tornadoes. In addition, the RAF flew Tornadoes, Typhoons, Nimrod, AWACS, VC-10s and Tristars as part of the NATO intervention in Libya. When it formed, the RAF had over 300,000 men, but during its heyday, during the Second World War, that had risen to over 1 million servicemen. Currently, the Air Force can barely muster 30,000 regular servicemen. Although its operational fast jet force is the smallest it's ever been, it can still boast over 160 Eurofighter Typhoons and F-35 Lightning IIs. In addition, it has many other aircraft like E-3D Sentry AWACS, A-400M Atlas Transports, Airbus Voyager Tankers, 
C-17A Globemasters, C-130J Hercules, plus a few RC-135 rivet joints and MQ-9 Reapers kicking around, not forgetting, of course, its large force of support helicopters and training aircraft. The RAF is still a fighting force to be reckoned with. I recently caught up with Sir Glenn Torpy, who was, only a few years ago, the Chief of the Air Staff. He was kind enough to give me his thoughts on the upcoming anniversary. It's been a fascinating story. It really has. And if you, if you look back to Trenchard's vision and the way he established the force, he could clearly see from very early on that air power was going to change the nature of conflict and that's been proven over the hundred years. But probably didn't realize it at the stage, but some of the underpinning principles in which he established the Air Force, he realized that it was going to rely on technology, and he realized it was going to rely on highly skilled people to use that technology, either to operate it or to support it. So he established um, RAF Cranwell, he established the apprentice uh, training scheme at RAF Halton, and that's been really the bedrock of the RAF from day one. He also recruited people from across society, and I think that's been a characteristic of the Air Force as well. So, you know, as I look at what we're going to be doing, what the current Air Force is going to be doing over the course of 2018, I mean, they have coined the phrase, they're going to commemorate, they're going to celebrate, but actually the most important bit, they're going to inspire future generations, um, both to be involved with air power in terms of military air power, but also air, the aerospace industry. So a huge amount of effort going into, into STEM activities. This is all focused on the youngsters, and I think that's absolutely right. But it's going to be you know, 100 aircraft fly past over London, it's going to be a big parade in London to commemorate um, the world's first independent air force. And there's some fantastic stories out there, you know, the individuals, the equipment. Um, so I think it's going to be a great year. With thanks to the Central Band of the Royal Air Force for the music, the RAF March Past.